Uh, today, we have the, the blessing and the privilege to have John Krantz teaching us. John, is, is uh, he's been a pastor at First Pres for 15 years. Um, he does amazing ministry there. He is, I think, a good like evidence that you've done good ministry is that you've officiated weddings, and this guy has officiated more weddings than anyone I know, and so he's impacted a lot of people, um, but he has impacted me as well. Um, I, in the days that I was working towards, towards starting this church, I was discouraged. I was bewildered. I had no idea of like how this was, how, how any of this was possible. And I was talking to some friends. They were like, "You know, Heath, you you just need to sit with John Krantz for a little bit." And I was like, "Who?" And they said, "John Krantz." I was like, "Sounds like a cool name." All right. So we went to Cafe Brazil, and 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 that began um, a relationship. And and I'll tell you, I don't know if John said these words, but the message he said to me was, "God is faithful." you're not alone. And that gave me courage. It gave me peace. And um, he's just been such an encourager who's lifted my arms and the arms of many over the years. And I mean, I think about like how many times we've actually hung out. I mean, I could probably count it on my hands, but yet the, the output and the richness of what the Lord has blessed me with because of it is immeasurable. So grateful for you. I'm grateful that you're here. John, come on up and y'all welcome, John. How's that? There it is. The person who uh, suggested that he f- meet with me was my mother, of course. <laughs> and I think you forgot the first time we met was at uh, the coffee place up in, um, up in the Heights, Boomtown? Yeah, that was before you even planted the church. And uh, it's funny, it was about five years ago, and I, I was on this journey as, you know, I've been around Houston for a while, and um, I had met all these people that were interested in planning a church. And Heath was one of them. And so we were visiting, and the first thought I thought was, why are you planting a church? We have plenty of churches. You were at uh, Grace Bible Church, right? And, and I, I sort of began this journey uh, for me and even our church to think about what it means to preach the gospel. And one of the best ways to do that is by planting a church. Uh, and interesting in that journey, there was probably five or six different uh, folks that I'd met, and one guy in particular he, uh, he was coming from this big Baptist church, and he was going to plan a church, I can't remember where, and we, we met for coffee, and he was pretty high on his horse. He was a very gifted preacher, he was dynamic, he had this huge following, he said, we're going to plan a church, and it's going to grow to thousands of people. Well, I had met him two years later, and we met for coffee, and he looked really tired, and he looked kind of sad, and I said, dude, what is up? He said, I didn't realize it was going to be this hard. A lot of people that I knew and loved, they left. Uh, all the pressure of, of numbers and budgets, and it, it feels like it's all on me. And so the reason I tell you that is keep praying for your pastor and his family. Remember to keep, and, and the other leaders too, but, but Heath, he needs your prayers. Uh, it's hard, uh, and it's good. This is evidence. You are evidence of this being good. You are a church, but please pray for Heath. Amen? Okay. Um, my wife and I have been married 20 years. I look so young. <laughs> she is a much better uh, theologian and Christian than I will ever be. She's so thoughtful. Um, we talk about what we're reading in the Bible and other books. We talk about parenting. and uh, we're, There's something called podcasts. Have you heard of this thing called podcasts? Those are really cool. We're listening to a lot of podcasts. 
And um, my wife sort of had this epiphany about two months ago. And she said, you know, when you read the Bible, you read the Bible like a lawyer. I went, oh, is that good or bad? And she said, well, you, you like to think about it. You, you parse words. You're trying to get after meaning and all those things. It's very helpful. And she said, I, my wife, she said, I read it like a lover. Where when I read the Bible, I want to fall deeper in love with Jesus. And she said, you know, we need both. We need to read the Bible like a lawyer and a lover with our mind and our heart. And so the reason I tell you that is you guys are almost in the middle of Romans. That is a book for lawyers. Lawyers love Romans because, man, Paul is making these arguments. It's, you have to put on your thinking cap. It's uh, an activity of the mind. You have to be really thoughtful about the words. Um, so we should read Romans like a lawyer. But also, let's never miss out on reading it like a lover. That we're trying to see God in these pages and in, in this book, in his word. And that we would not only have this sort of mind trip, which we need, but also that our affections would grow all the more for him. Okay. So um, we're in Romans 4. I want you to think about this phrase. I didn't come up with it. But the phrase is simply this. If it's to be, it's up to me. I think this was born out of the New Age movement like 40 years ago. I have no idea. If it's to be, it's up to me. There's some truth to it. If you want to excel and get better and grow at anything, it seems like a lot of it's on you. A lot of it's on me. In academics, in business, in relationships, in athletics. If it's to be, it's up to me. I got to do stuff. We also tend to, I think, plant that onto our spiritual formation as Christians. And sometimes we do it unknowingly. We think, I got to do all this stuff to make God love me more. Now, it might not be at the forefront of your mind, but I wonder if that's something that we all struggle with as Christians and as humans. Uh, the text today will speak into this. If it's to be, it's up to me. Is that true or not? Paul will, will speak directly to it. And we see two things in the text. This is uh, chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, a small text, uh, but two sort of movements. The first, I'm, I'm calling law language. Paul's talking about the law. And we see that he thinks that the law is bad, but also that the law is good. And it's important to know the difference between the two. And then secondly, he talks promise language, that faith is critical in receiving the promises of God. So law language, promise language. I want to share with you uh, how I think they're opposed to each other, but also how they intersect. Okay. Uh, let's pray. God, we pray that you will bless the reading and the hearing of your word. Oh, I pray that this would not just be information exchange, but we would have open hearts and minds to receive from you. Help us be attentive to your word, that we would let it and want it to sink in deep, that it would change us and transform us and point us to Jesus. We need your help, God. We are distracted. 
we are thinking of football and chicken wings and parties and celebrations, all really good things. But God, we believe you are near. Help us know your presence and receive it today. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it's a tradition in my church. I want to just do it with you if that's okay. When the preacher finishes reading the Bible, he will say the word of the Lord and the congregation says, thanks be to God. Can we try that today? Okay. If you forget, it's okay. Uh, this is now uh, God's word to us, chapter 4 of Romans in verse 13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world but through righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless. Because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace, and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only those who are of the law, but those who have faith, who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. The word of the Lord. Good job. Okay, so the first section, law language. Paul writes, it was not through the law that Abraham received the blessing of God. So if you can transport 2,000 years ago, and you were a Christian in a small church, and you were receiving this letter from Paul, the super apostle, and your pastor or elder was reading through this letter. It was probably read through in one set setting. It would take maybe two hours. And if you were a Gentile, meaning non-Jewish, you would probably hear this and go, okay, this is good. If you were Jewish, when we got to chapter 4, you would throw up your hand and say, heresy. You would say, nonsense. This is insanity. There might even be like a pause and we have to go talk with the pastor. Are you kidding me? This is Paul saying this? Because basically what he's saying is that at the core of Judaism, which was the law. This is what justified people and made people right with God. He's saying, that's not it anymore. And if you were to hear that, you would be shocked. Paul is, is talking about something new. Earlier in chapter 4, we see Paul talk about two other functions in Judaism. Works and circumcision. Works is simply just doing good works. And circumcision was a sign of who you are as part of God's family. He's speaking into the Jewish religious system of the day. He's sort of targeting this idea of religious pedigree. That's about what you do and it's sort of who you are in your past. And so what he's doing now is he's saying works and circumcision, that's not, and now he's deepening it with the law. The law is the Torah. It's the Jewish Bible. It is the most important book for them. The law came from Moses, the Ten Commandments, and all the 600 
other laws and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. All these things are so important to the life of Judaism. But what Paul is saying is works and circumcision and law, these are not the causes of the blessings and promises of God. I, um, at my church, I lead a series of classes for um, people who are interested in joining uh, First Pres. We call it Explore FPC or something. And I've been doing it for three years, um, and we have sort of changed the landscape of these classes. We talk about um, the vision and values of our church. We talk about our expectation of people who join. Um, we've switched the language from membership to uh, covenant partnership. We want people to be partners in the gospel. Um, and I always start each class with the gospel. I want people to be very clear what we believe about Jesus, who he is, and what he's done for us. Uh, and so two years ago, we decided every person who wants to join, we want them to meet with an elder. So every person who says, yeah, I want to go through the class and I want to join, they have to have a conversation with an elder. Uh, it's not only to get to know the leadership of the church, but it's for the leaders to get to know people who are joining with the one caveat that they want to make sure the people joining are Christians. Now, that sounds a little strange, someone who joins a church not being a Christian, but in a denominational historical church like ours, that actually happens and has happened in the past. Okay, so the elders are trained. Um, when they speak with someone, they're trained to ask really basic Christian doctrine questions. Tell me about your faith. Tell me about what Jesus means to you. Tell me about your understanding of sin. So we're trying to get basic uh, answers of basic Christianity. Okay. Um, so guess what kind of answers we have heard from time to time? Elder asks, tell me about your faith journey. Give me your testimony. Here's what we've heard. I've been on a mission trip to Africa. I taught Sunday school for 20 years. I was an elder at my previous church. All these things are really good, right? Do they sound kind of like works to you? Uh, one answer which was actually kind of funny and tragic and shocking uh, when the elder asked this 50-year-old, this tell me about your faith story. And the dude said, it was just very dramatic. This was the elder retelling it to me. It was very dramatic. He said, I was baptized 50 years ago as a baby in the sanctuary of First Press by none other than Dr. King. Not Martin Luther King, but Dr. King was the guy who like built the church, whatever. That was his faith story. He was baptized by some like really awesome preacher. Sounds a little bit like circumcision. Not really, but kind of. One dude, one elder shared with me when asked about sin, like, what's your understanding of sin? And this person just shared this whole litany of what they don't do. And the phrase that I've heard once, it's, I don't drink or chew or go with girls who do. I don't know, if the, is that from the Baptist church or something? I don't know. <laughs> But that sounds kind of like law. Now, obviously, you get the point. Um, it's not just back then that Jewish people struggled with works and law. 
and having their identity marker something that was done to them in the past. It's something that I think we all struggle with as human beings. We want rules. We want to know what to do and, and what to obey. We want, we want to know how to, how to live so we can live well. And frankly, that's, that's important. However, if you're the type of person that just wants to dot all the I's and cross all the T's in your faith, if you want to do everything right, I think you're missing out on something important in your faith and in Christianity. It's the promise of God. If it's to be, it's up to me. Maybe that is your mantra. Paul is saying very clearly that this type of religious practice will get you nowhere with God. This type of religion is the enemy of the gospel. And the law can be a part of that. In fact, I think Paul is saying that a religion based on law only can lead to poison. It's very dangerous. Why? Because the end result can be, not always, but can be self-righteousness. I'm really pretty good. When I look at the law and I look at my life, I'm actually doing pretty, I'm, I'm doing fine. That is the natural end result of having a religion based on law. Luke 18, Jesus, he was um, speaking to a lot of different people and he noticed the motivations of many. He could peer into their heart and he saw that they were full of themselves. So he, he told this story, this parable. A Pharisee, Luke 18, a Pharisee and a tax collector go to the temple to pray. And guess what the Pharisee does? He thanks God for himself. He says, God, I'm grateful that I'm not like evildoers or robbers or bad people or like this tax collector. He says, I give a tenth of all I have, I tithe, and I fast twice a week. So this dude is super religious. He's keeping the law. He's not a bad guy. He's, he's a Pharisee. Well, what does the tax collector do? He doesn't even approach the temple. He looks from a far way off, doesn't even raise his head to heaven. And he beats his chest and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus said, who goes home justified? Who, after going to church, goes home with a right relationship with God? The religious person or the tax collector, the person on the margins? It's not the Pharisee. It's the person who simply says, help me, God, help me. So the law only will lead to self-righteousness. It's the inevitable end. Paul is saying no. The law only will get you nowhere with God. It didn't for Abraham, and it won't for you and me. So if we leave it there, we'll say, well, what's the law good for? I mean, that's what the people had for centuries. Is, that, is it so negative? No, there's, there's a good part of the law too. And Paul even mentions it later in verse 15. He says, the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. So what does Paul mean by the wrath piece? This is important. The law doesn't rescue people. Following the rules will not save you. 
But what it does do is it reveals, it confirms our, our condemnation. It reels, reveals to us our sin. And then he says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. How will we know when we've crossed the line? So sin is this big sort of umbrella. It's, it's a cosmic power in the world. And transgression is like a type of sin. Transgression simply means crossing the line. How would we know if we're crossing the line if we don't have the law? I um, Also, when you look to Galatians 3, that's a very important chapter. Paul sort of explains this even more. And he says that the law was the guardian of God's people before Christ. So it's important. Um, I was driving up in Oak Forest, Garden Oaks. Anyone know that area? Okay, a few of you, two of you. It's north of the Heights. It's in Houston, outside the loop. Um, and I dropped my boys off at their friend's house. This was on a Saturday months ago. And I was going to do some errands. And I kind of had a tight clip. I had about two hours, and I was going to go all over the place. So I pull out on um, 43rd Street. Anyone know 43rd Street? Okay. It's beautiful. It is wide. It's got like four, maybe six lanes. I think it's four lanes. It's like a thoroughfare. And so I get on the road, and I'm about ready to just open up. I'm going to hit on the accelerator. I'm going to cruise all the way down to Ella. I'm going to get going on my day. And I look over, and guess what the speed limit is? It should be 55. It was 30. No one else on the road, just me. I was sad. This was going to take like three minutes out of my day. But then as I thought about it, I actually had this epiphany. I thought about it. I got to Ella and I turned left. I said, why is it 30? Well, if you notice on 43rd, there's a lot of houses, a lot of houses. Even though it's wide open, beautiful road, a lot of houses. What if the speed limit wasn't 30? What if it was what I wanted, 55? And I'm driving in the right lane and a car backs out. Well, I have the ability to slow down in time. I'll hit the car. What if, God forbid, there were children playing and a ball goes out to the street? You get the point. That is a good law. That 30 mile an hour speed limit is a good law. And if I, in driving, was going 40, I would have transgressed that law. Does everyone understand that? That's a transgression when you cross the line. And the laws are good. They show us what sin is. They keep us in the boundaries of what is normal and acceptable. But the law is incomplete. The law cannot save you. It cannot save me. The law cannot save Abraham or any Jewish person. Interesting when uh, the standard theology of the day was that Abraham was uh, given blessings by God because he obeyed the law. The law was given 400 years later. The point being is they're saying Abraham obeyed God and then God blessed Abraham. It's religion. Do all the right things and God will bless you. Paul says no. So where do you find yourself here? In this passage, as you reflect on your own faith, are you, do you flirt with self-righteousness? 
Like if you were to look at the law and you'd say, I'm actually pretty good. I don't drink or chew or go with girls or boys who do. I've never murdered anyone. I'm mostly honest. Maybe I cheat on my taxes a little bit, but with this new tax code, it's weird. Maybe you think to yourself, I'm actually pretty good. If that's you, your faith could be based primarily on what you do. On your effort, on your energy, on your will to try to do what is right. But maybe Paul is saying something different, entirely different. Abraham was justified and he became the heir of the world in verse 13 from a righteousness that comes by faith. Righteousness is a $10 word. It's uh, very long. Our understanding of righteousness in the church comes primarily from Martin Luther, who got his primarily from the Apostle Paul. And that is an understanding of God's righteousness given to us through faith in Jesus. It's ours. That when God looks at you and me, He doesn't see our own righteousness. He sees his sons. That the blame for all the sin in the world, it's not on us. It all went on Jesus. That's righteousness. That's a gift. We also need to understand righteousness as an act. The Gospel of Matthew, if you read that in Romans, you'll see Matthew doesn't say that righteousness is a gift. It's something that we do. We are compelled to live rightly. How do the two go together? Well, they do beautifully. Because both are a gift. And righteousness for Paul and for Jesus, it's never first. It's always a result of something God has done for us. It's a result of what? Verse 16. Here's the promise. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace. If law language is you shall, promise language that we hear from God is I will. Law language is it's it's all on you. Promise language, it's all on God. Chapter 4, faith apart from works, faith apart from circumcision, faith apart from the law, faith and the promise are totally intertwined. If faith doesn't matter, then God's grace in Jesus is meaningless. Okay, I want to take a pause and ask a really big question. I've been thinking about it a lot, and it applies to this text, but is there a difference between belief and faith? You can probably throw in there trust. Belief, faith, and trust. Is there a difference between all three? So I'm not a Bible scholar, uh, a language expert. But um, as I have read people who are, they would say that belief and trust and faith, certainly in the Bible, are so interconnected. They are so interwoven that you can't really separate all three of them that the subtleties are just minuscule, that belief and trust are actually the same thing. But 
I would argue that in our current modern Christianity, we have separated the two. Here's why. Belief has become intellectual assent and acknowledgement of facts about Jesus. So you could say, I believe that the earth is round. I believe that George Washington was the first president, and I believe that Jesus lived and died and rose again for my sins. Information. We can believe that about Jesus, and it can have little impact on our actual life. We could say to ourselves, I believe this, but I'm not really interested in allowing Jesus to work in me. We can, be, we can be lawyers in how we view this and not lovers. That's what belief has turned, to, turned into. We have separated belief and trust. If you think of a parachute, any of you ever jumped out of a plane with a parachute? Oh my gosh, many of you. Okay, you're totally going to know this. You can believe, you can have facts about the actual parachute, that it will work that it's made out of good material, that the person who designed it was very wise. But until you put it on and go up in the plane and you get to the door, apparently that's the moment, right? Until you take that leap, it will never be trust. You will not have faith that the parachute will work until you jump out of the airplane. Such is the same with, with God and with Christ. We need faith and belief and trust to be intermingled together. So what was the promise that was given to Abraham? Do you all know this? Back in Genesis? God promised him that he would get land, and he sort of measured out the borders of that. God said that you're going to have lots of offspring, and that you will be the father of many nations. So pretty robust set of promises. How then does the law language and the promise language intersect? Which way do you lean? Do you lean more toward law? I got to do stuff. Or more toward simple reception of the promise that God has for you? Uh, the Protestant Pope is named Tim Keller. Okay. <laughs> I know of no Christian pastor that does not like Tim Keller. I really don't. But he's, would you say the Protestant Pope? Is that? <laughs> he says that we need to live in both worlds simultaneously. Law and gospel. And here's what he says. You are more sinful than you ever dared imagine. The law reflects back our sin. That's important. But you're more loved than you ever dared believe. The promise that Jesus did this for you. It's something that you just receive. How then do we live into this promise today, like Abraham did? How then do we receive the promise of God each and every day? Not just a one-time deal, but each and every day. How do we do that? We reflect on verse 17, the very end. This is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. That's in direct reference to Abraham and Sarah. God gave the promise to him and to them, 
But what was the problem? They were old. Sarah couldn't have children. He gave this promise, and it was an impossibility to fulfill on Abraham and Sarah's part. You could, you could say that, Ab- that Sarah's womb, in a sense, was dead. She could not have children. And what did God do? He brought to life this promise in them both. He made her womb, in a sense, alive. And that the promise was able to be fulfilled because of what God had done. Think about Jesus, God's special son. We sang about it earlier, about the darkness that overshadowed him. Jesus died. He was dead for three days. And what did God do? He brought him back to life. God is all about taking dead things and making them alive. How about for you and me? If you've been a Christian your whole life, or if you said yes to Jesus today, or if you're, you don't know, God wants dead things to come to life in your faith and in your life. The way in which we can continually embrace, uh, embrace this promise that was for Abraham, and ultimately it was the promise of the Messiah, is we remember that we were once dead but that because of Jesus, we're now alive. I want to close with Ephesians 2. This might be pretty familiar to many of you. But Paul writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And later in verse 4, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Remember that you once were dead. The law shows us that. We were dead and without hope. But then what happens? Through faith in Jesus because of the grace that was freely given by God, we're now alive. That's how we embrace the promise. I would suggest to you that the ultimate way in which we receive God's promise today, if you're a believer or not, is to remember it. Is to preach the gospel to yourself each and every day. Oh, I'm a person of law. I love the rules. I want to know what to do, right or wrong. That's a good place to be. But don't forget the promise Don't forget the grace. Don't forget the faith that is always first. How then can we bridge the gap and intermingle law and gospel? Remember that we were once dead, but because of Christ, he made us alive. Amen? Let's say a prayer together. So God, I thank you that your son Jesus modeled a ministry of peering into people's motivations. That you do this even now, today. I pray that you would purify us in our motives with you. 
that we would long to put our trust in you each and every day for our whole life, not just our salvation. I pray that you would remind us that we are more loved than we ever dared believe, that no one would leave here wondering if there is a call from this pulpit to to engage in religion, empty religion without you. That is not what we want. That's not what you want. We're mindful, God, that this is a work that you and only you can do. So I pray that you would, by your spirit, remind us of this good news that we can enjoy. Remind us of the promise of the Messiah that he lived and died and rose again and ascended. Help us put all this together in you. We need your help, God. We need your help. Have mercy on us. Remind us that you indeed are with us all along the way. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God that speaks. Continue to speak even as we're ready to leave this place. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.